0: Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, Jeff. Hello,
1: Brett. Wow. How are you? <laughs> you like that greeting? Yeah, I was scripted. I
0: wanted to be enthusiastic because I wanted my my tone to reflect my... Your enthusiasm. My, my happiness. I am thrilled to be here. I always enjoy the podcast and... My company, of course. Your company. Yes. That's part of why I enjoy the podcast. Of it's course. opportunity to chat with you. And I, too, enjoy
1: being here with you.
0: This is now our second podcast of the new year. Feeling good about it. I feel great. I feel great. I think 2023 was a great year. I'm yeah. optimistic about 2024. Yep. I think we're going to have some challenges this year. There's an election happening this year, which I'm not really looking forward to. But challenge, everyone always says challenge. Challenge
1: is sometimes a good thing. I agree. I I think challenge is a good, it can be a very good thing. Did you overcome any challenges in 2023? Oh, many. Yes? Yeah, sure. Every day, getting out of bed is a challenge, right? You went to Everest Base Camp. I did. I did. I went to Base Camp. I climbed Whistler Mountain. Enough times, Sick. 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 eight times eight in times. thirty. Within 20, it was actually twenty-two or twenty-three hours to achieve the elevation gain of twenty-nine thousand oh twenty-nine. Actually, it was probably ended up being thirty thousand feet. You know those gondolas? They go up too. They don't. Just they go do down. go up. Yeah, but you know the challenge, which is a good challenge, right? Yeah. And so, among other challenges that we've had in our lives, personal and professional. How about you? Uh, what challenges did you overcome, uh, if any?
0: I, I, mean, I have a new easy personal for you, record in swimming. I swear, as you know, on December 31st, I yeah. squeaked it in at the you end hit of the year. I swam right. five and a half miles, which is by far the longest I've ever swam, three hours and 17 minutes. The crowd is cheering behind us. Yeah. Yeah. Silent um, crowd, but they're cheering behind I us. So was, congratulations for that. I, I wanted to count it for 2024, but I've been told you by can't numerous do that. people that yeah, you can't it's 2023. 20, so yeah. now I got to find a new challenge for that, Physical. I feel like you will.
1: I have a question for you. Normally you ask me the question, but I have a question oh, for you. And I know we're going a little long and our, and our guest is going gonna, is gonna to fall asleep and, think, and hang yeah, we'll up on us out. soon. But real quick, I heard this quote this morning and I, I loved it. I thought it was great. And it's great uh, beginning of a year. And, and so I'm going to say the quote. And I'm going to have a question for you. The quote is, a goal without a plan is just a wish. I agree I with that. that. I love that. I like So that. name a goal for 2024 and what's your plan to
0: achieve it? Wow, you're really putting me on the spot. So it has to be <laughs> a smart goal though, right? Because it has to be, I don't remember even what to Stop with the
1: analysis
0: and the whole, just so, come on, give me a uh, goal and what's your plan to get there? All right, so my goal will be to swim more than five and a half miles, but I want to make it measurable and okay. attainable. So my goal will be to swim more than I was going to say seven. I'm going to, I'm going to say seven miles, at least seven miles. Okay. Do a seven-mile swim. Okay. Done. And my plan you, you will can be to continue with my swimming regime and start working on a, a time to do it. But most of my goals are about maintaining health, mm-hmm. wellness, well-being, mm-hmm. fine-tuning my routine, my structure, and focusing on my priorities, which are my family my health and longevity and, and of course and my partner partnership in my of, course,
1: yes, of course yes of <laughs> course so excellent well said thank you for that do you have one that you want to share before we go to our guest
0: no all right beautiful Come we can we
1: can wait for the next one i think we've kept him waiting long enough that our think? guest
0: today is seth freeman seth is a managing director at b Riley advisory services he has many titles he is a certified insolvency and restructuring advisor a certified turnaround professional And he has over 30 years of diverse consulting experience in bankruptcy, insolvency, and restructuring. He specializes in financial advisory, cross-border markets, and EB-5-related matters. He has a strong track record in complex dispute resolution, litigation support, and fiduciary roles. He co-founded EM Capital Management, LLC, before joining Glass Ratner, which is now B. Riley Financial Services. He's a really a jack of of many trades. He has a focus on real estate investment, distressed assets, and debt portfolios. And his industry experience spans startups, technology, finance, hospitality, and more. And he's also a sought-after speaker, and he's been featured on Bloomberg TV, cnbc and now the practice podcast well that is certainly going to
1: make its way into his bio for sure it should actually go before bloomberg i think i I think it might be
0: the first line i i I would welcome (laughs) welcome thank Thank you you. we're happy to have you seth so can you you want to tell people what does all that mean that you're what does it mean to non-bankruptcy people what does it mean that you're a certified insolvency and restructuring advisor
2: Sure, and I, I should start by saying that um, that was a really uh, kind of old bio. <laughs> oh yeah, and yeah, there was. Uh, it's been updated since, but but more, basically,
0: do you have more? Do you uh, have more titles now?
2: One of my roles for uh, for B Riley Advisory Services now is as National Originations Leader. So one of my primary jobs, besides uh, executing projects, is helping bring in some new business. Cool keeps me running around quite a lot. So what does a certified insolvency and restructuring advisor or a certified turnaround professional do? Basically, we support attorneys providing the financial and, and business side of Chapter 11 cases. And more broadly, as part of a team, a lot of cases involve forensic investigations, calculating valuations, calculating damages in litigation and performing a variety of investigations and basically supporting a range of stakeholders, which can range from boards of directors, uh, shareholders, single large creditors, committees, official committees of unsecured creditors in Chapter 11 cases, and also a lot of investors or hedge funds and debt providers might be might be private funds and hedge funds. And so it's a it's a wide range of stakeholders in business.
0: Excellent. And I think we take this for granted a little bit that everything you just said comes natural to, you know, the three of us. But many, you know, non-bankruptcy lawyers and certainly many non-lawyers have no sense of what know, what bankruptcy really is or what chapter 11 really is. I mean, maybe they read a headline about, uh, you know, a company Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever that they've heard of. Mm -hmm. But this idea of, you know, a company in distress and how our system is designed to protect and preserve businesses, because I guess we decided that society is better off with a business surviving, even if people have to take, you know, financial haircuts.
2: We don't have better prisons in our country. (laughs) <laughs> Although there's some creditors who uh, would, would wish wish for their debtors to go to prison, yeah, and some 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 ultimately do, but it's based on a on a very fundamental premise that actually recycling capital is is good for everybody. That businesses should just not be destroyed and, and dissipated and go away forever. That capital that can be released in a organized process helps the entire economy. If you look at other countries, for example, there's a long tradition of basically just liquidations. And, you know, countries like India only about eight years ago adopted something that's a a hybrid approach to Chapter 11. But until then, most companies, uh, to the extent the equity holders couldn't stave off the creditors for decades in court would be liquidated so chapter 11 allows fundamentally is intended to allow companies to reorganize one of the kind of dirty little secrets i think though in our industry especially when we think of uh, turnarounds and turnaround management or uh, deals of the year which i've been fortunate to uh, win a few times is that in a sense Most Chapter 11s are a form of liquidation because the owners of the company before bankruptcy generally don't own the company afterwards. Most companies are sold as operating assets. Even though the corporation or the LLC may not get sold, all of the assets get transferred to a buyer. That's how a lot of reorganizations end up happening. But it preserves jobs, it preserves vendors, customers, and a lot of businesses these days are based on IP. And a lot of work goes into developing intellectual property so that stuff gets to get recycled.
1: And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that in terms of the traditional sort of, even a chapter 11 reorg is a lot of times a liquidation because of the sort of the transfer of equity And ownership. But what have you seen in the trend? It seems like the old days, when we were younger, I guess all of us, of like the traditional, you've company files chapter 11, they're reorganized, they come out and that, you know, that's kind of gone. And I feel like some of that has to do with injection of private equity into this process. But maybe there's some other factors, anything that
2: you're seeing yeah, well, over the decades, what's really changed a lot is the fact that banks are not really the primary lender to a lot of middle market and leveraged companies. You know, years ago, Chapter 11 or, or even what used to be called a um, composition, <laughs> <laughs> if you guys remember those, <laughs> which really goes back. Back to the garment industry, yeah, because those, those kinds of companies would get in trouble all the time. They were chronically undercapitalized and seasonal, and subject to designs and department stores canceling orders and things like this. And most of them had lines of credit or loans from banks, and banks had a longer-term view on their relationships with their customers. Uh, number one, and and the vendors had more of a long-term relationship with their customer. So those were more traditional kind of workouts. And so you're absolutely right. It's changed a lot with private capital and even the way that, that uh, banks are structured. For example, I'm the, the CRO of a small medical durable medical products company. And they ended up with an over-advance on their line of credit. And, actually the co- it was because of a problem with a specific customer not really the company itself and the bank made the decision not only did they want the loan you know resolved but they don't want that customer anymore and even though now it's in compliance with all the covenants and you know they would actually be a pretty darn good customer and so there's less tolerance within banks but a lot of Chapter 11s and a lot of loans have been made by hedge funds and so-called private debt funds, and they are basically fund managers. They're fiduciaries for their investors, mm-hmm. and they've promised a certain rate of return and a certain level of uh, asset management and and uh, underwriting practices and collection practices, and they're quite serious about getting their money back.
0: Yeah, we can shift gears a little bit. How did, how did you find your way to this industry? I mean, you have an MBA by training and, and, and 30 years in sort of turnaround business. How did you become a, a turnaround advisor?
2: In a very unconventional way compared to most of my peers. Many people in my field may have started their careers as accountants. At a school, joined a, a large accounting firm. And the same way that many attorneys end up becoming bankruptcy lawyers, they get out of law school, go to a firm and, you know, they're, they're on the bench and the boss says, hey, we got a bankruptcy case. You're, you're a bankruptcy lawyer this week. And, you know, I think the three of us would agree we're in, a, in an incredibly fascinating, interesting niche of the business world and the legal world in the sense that uh, we get to learn a lot about how the sausage is made. Everything's different. There's a lot of negotiation, so it's not just looking at uh, accounting rules and and only codes. There's deals that are made, so it makes it very interesting. I did not um, go to school to uh, become an accountant and, and work my way up through accounting and becoming an expert that way. I was uh, fairly young and had the privilege of joining a a small but fairly powerful real estate investment company that did development and asset management. And we had a loan portfolio. And the principal of the firm had built up the biggest real estate brokerage, residential real estate brokerage in Central California from sort of Northern LA County to San Luis Obispo. He would use that money to invest in other businesses besides developing property. And he was brilliant at real estate, but absolutely terrible at at figuring out what to invest in from an operating standpoint. I really started off, you know, as a real estate person doing leasing for our company's portfolio, and it was a high-pressure cooker environment. And I was about 23 years old, 22. The chief operating officer had a heart attack at 36 Whoa. And um, the the chairman of the company called me into the office, and he said, "Mendelson's not coming back to work. You're the COO." <laughs> and I didn't I didn't know anything. <laughs> and o- overnight, I started managing about 24 lawsuits <laughs> of of all kinds, and I was responsible for fixing a whole range of businesses from uh, retail startups. You guys may remember the original. From X, instant film development companies, where you would bring your bring your film in and and you'd get instant development and instant printouts in an hour. We were a major factor in using our balance sheet to uh, support the leases for these one-hour photo finishing places. So this goes way back. You know, I can't tell you how many of those I was involved in seizing because it was, <laughs> those those uh, businesses didn't work out in, in many cases. So I learned by fire running a variety of different troubled companies ranging from uh, construction projects to hotels to early stage retail chains, restaurants, all kinds of different businesses. And just sort of moved up from there over time and moved to San Francisco and continued onward before joining Glass Radner. I ran my own firm for almost 30 years, and we were a combined firm of doing restructuring and advisory work, but we also ran a small private fund that was focused on emerging markets. And that's really where the emerging markets piece comes from after having gone to high school in Mexico City. It's different. It's very. It's a very different uh, journey. Uh, than most of my colleagues.
1: Okay. So let's, let's put a pin in that. Let's talk about the high school (laughs) school. in Mexico city. (laughs) How did you get there? And then eventually, you know, come back to the States or, or was that just sort of a, Hey, I'm going to go down, you know, my parents moved down there. I'm going to live there for a bit. And then we we came back mean, tell us, tell us what happened there.
2: Yeah. You know, back in the seventies, parents did not have Discussions with their children about, <laughs> about about family plans, right? Right. People said, "Okay, Dad or Mom said this is what we're doing. All right." And it was the answer was yes. So my father was a professor at Brandeis and had had a sabbatical coming, and I guess he really <laughs> wanted to get out of the snow. So we moved. He has, took a job at, in Mexico City, and I uh, was fortunate to to go there during just an unbelievable, fantastic time in Mexico City. And we stayed there for a few years, and the weather was so mild. There was no way we were going back to the Boston area. So he took a job at UCLA. That's how I ended up in California.
1: So San Francisco, you and I touched on it briefly before we started the podcast, if you listen to any news reports or you listen to any number of podcasts or whatever it is, everyone is talking about the demise of California in general, but, but, but San Francisco as well. Favorite city of mine. I know Jeff loves it out there in Northern California as well. You know, tell us and our listener, hopefully that's not true. What's going on in San Francisco? And, you know, what are you seeing in terms of, you know, the, I don't know, the downfall of San Francisco? Is that not what's happening?
2: the downfall per se is is quite overstated in the media i mean we all look at the news and the news likes to show us only at the end of a news program is there sort of a happy story yeah. generally yeah and so you know san francisco's very unique in the sense that it, it was for many years the wall street of the west it is very complicated politically we do have mild relatively mild weather reagan shut down most of the mental hospitals decades ago there are a large number of mentally ill people and drug addicted people who are at various levels of competency in every city it's not unique to uh, san francisco and we get a lot of bad press we we've seen on tv for example you know groups of people coming into uh, a high-end store, and grabbing stuff off the shelf. That gets, that gets a lot of press. I've had uh, friends from New York who are planning to come out to San Francisco with their families calling me and asking me, is it safe? Is it safe to bring my family? And, you know, I said, well, you live in Manhattan, right? So you don't have to, you know, go in the areas, which one area is called the Tenderloin. So it, it's not bad. the The restaurant scene is fantastic geographically, there's just so much to do.
1: Yep. Yeah. You
2: have, you know, just over the Golden Gate Bridge, you have Sausalito, uh, uh, which is just gorgeous, Tiburon. You're an hour, hour and a half to Napa or Sonoma Wine Country. So it's quite overdone. I spent the last couple of evenings in downtown San Francisco for the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. And there were 30,000 visitors in town for this. And everyone was clearly having a good time. I was personally walking through downtown last evening at uh, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and there's really no problem. So, but it's politic, very politically difficult. It's a very liberal environment, and it's extremely hard and virtually suicidal for politicians to take certain actions. We had the APEC conferences here in San Francisco a few weeks ago, and Somebody gave the order to clean things up. The city received all kinds of compliments from foreign officials. So come to San Francisco, come to the Bay Area. It's, it's as good as it used to be. Yeah, I love it there. And like, like anything else, it
0: uh, tends to be overblown. And you're seeing one, you know, one city street or one area or one block. It's kind of like, you know, growing up in Miami when Miami Vice was on, you know, when that show was <laughs> right. on, people were like, oh, my God, are you safe there? Yeah. Yes. It's, it's 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 fine.
1: That's partially real, though, right? Like, right. I mean, yeah. You know, no, that's that's, true, let's yeah, be. Yeah. You know.
2: yeah. Yeah. The one thing we don't have that you guys have are nice, warm beaches. Yeah. So, yeah. No, our, do, do, don't we, come to San Francisco for the
0: beach. Right. We we have swimmable water. I'm curious, Seth. Going back to the whole restructuring, do you have a a favorite, or maybe even a least favorite, you know, restructuring uh, story?
2: In the last four or five years, I've been really fortunate to work on some pretty large Ponzi scheme and fraud cases. And it's just amazing to me the choices that that human beings make. And that also, you know, if someone is committing a a billion dollar fraud or a two hundred and fifty million dollar fraud, how they are just not, you know, waking up in the morning you know, basically as nervous as could be about, you know, what could happen before the day's over.
1: That's pretty you remarkable, know? isn't it?
0: Yeah. It is you know, remarkable.
2: We, deal, we we think that we deal with a lot of stress, you know, in our day to day. And so these these cases are, are just really fascinating because I do think that in general they start off being legitimate businesses. And a little sort of bad bad decision You know, probably would have gone away or been taken care of. But some people are just psychologically set up to do it a little bit bigger (laughs) and and get away with it and do it a little bit bigger. And then eventually they become, you know, very sociopathic about it and actually have to believe at a certain point that they're not going to get caught. And though at the scale, they really have no choice once it becomes really big. Either, either you have to keep doing it until you get caught, or admit it, or, or you have to wake up in the morning. You know, maybe your wife says, "Listen, this is enough of this." You go, you go down straight to the FBI and tell them what you did. That's not going to happen. Yeah. So, what's fun about these cases is that you get to develop some theories early on. And I do enjoy you know, what's called the discovery process and sort of like a puzzle, looking to piece together the evidence and hope to find that one email that kind of put, puts it all together. So that's a very interesting part of this business. And that's one area. The other is I really do enjoy working with principles of troubled companies You know, a lot of the times we're working for people, we're working for for corporations. You know, yes, we're going to do the very best job we can for them, but these are large organizations and and oftentimes the problems don't necessarily impact directly the people we're dealing with. But with a a smallish, medium-sized company that's owned by a family or a multi-generational company, you really feel like you're solving some serious problems and you, you have to be as much a therapist as a, a financial person.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, we've obviously experienced that as well. And when you're doing work for a, you know, a big company, it's, you're solving a file on their desk. You know, when you're working for a, you know, a family owned business or it's, it's their livelihood, it's a really might as well be another member of their family. You know, we've been mm-hmm. in multi-generational businesses that you know, were founded right. by the parents and then the next generation takes over and you know, you're trying to save a, you know, a legacy, essentially. Right. And I love that opportunity to have a positive impact on you know, people's lives. We're fortunate to you know, be able to make a living in that way. And then in terms of the fraud and the Ponzi schemes, I'm always amazed that you know, it's not easy perpetuating a lie And especially when you're telling different lies to different people, like just keeping track of that. I can't imagine. I'm a terrible liar. I cannot imagine like the amount of stress and energy that goes into that. And then I always think if you just took this amount of effort, and put it into a legitimate business, like, you know, the manufacturing invoices and, like, just make something, create something, do provide a service. It's am- amazing to me. So, it, you're right. It's hard for us to think like that. Yeah. But at
1: some point in the process, they start to believe it. Yeah, yeah. And so really it is not crazy, a lie crazy to crazy them pretty, anymore.
0: Right, yeah, they are. And so they, it's easy for them. Right. It just
1: rolls off the tongue, and it's the truth. In their mind. In, or not... Right. Right. They're not lying. They're lying. Right. You're right. You know, and you catch them and you show them things and they immediately have a dozen explanations as to why that's not a fraud and that's not an issue and why we're wrong. Yeah. Right. I'm sure Seth has seen that. I've seen that. You've seen that. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way that they operate. So we sitting here can't possibly think. Like you said, I I can't, you know, it's hard to sleep now thinking about just trying to keep everything in line. I can't even imagine like operating, you know, a fraud and lying and cheating and stealing. Like, could you, you know, forget it. So, but these people sleep really well. A lot of them sleep really well at night because they believe it. Yeah. You know?
2: Some, you know, get stuck in it too. They adopt a very high, high expense lifestyle. Using other people's money, and everyone else around them only sees that they don't see what's really how the sausage is being made, mm-hmm. where where all that money's coming from, and feel like they have to kind of sustain this this image. So it's it really is amazing, you know. Maybe the three of us just aren't creative enough. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <Wow>. Well, <laughs> you know, the other feature of many of these, if not all of them, is they often involve, you know, the initial investors are typically friends and family, you know, and so mm-hmm. they not only are they defrauding people, but they're defrauding the very people, you know, their, their, fa- their family and their friends. I mean, we have one of those right now and, you know, I feel terrible for the people, but God, I mean, imagine doing that to your loved ones. It's just, you got to be a special kind of bad person.
2: And on, on some of the larger ones, you know, they're very shrewd at packaging what they're selling and it's sort of the classical affinity fraud situation or you know we hear we read about FOMO you know the fear of missing out
1: mm-hmm.
2: where there's reliance upon if there's an anchor investor so-called anchor investor the other investors think gee that smart that smart person that smart party must see something so I don't really need to do my own independent investigation as much. And so they, they kind of rely on the reputation of, of others. I mean, Madoff was like that. Um, other cases we're involved with are like that. It's, it's uh, gee, I, I know someone else that's in this yeah. deal and I, okay. admire, I admire them.
1: Well, um, and, and these people, listen, they're very, the ones that perpetuate in the bigger, the bigger, bigger are smart, right? They, mm-hmm. and they're engaging, and that's how they get at least the initial phase, the initial stage. They can mm-hmm. sell, they can market, they will <laughs> engage, and they're like when you first meet them, you know they're usually nice. You like them, you are engaged with them, but you know they just happen to, just happen yeah. to be perpetuating a fraud, and. Because if they're not, if they're rude, obnoxious, if they're then people aren't gonna take to them, and they're gonna think something's wrong, yeah. and and you know they're not gonna be able to build that fraud that they're that they're building. So yeah, it's got to be there. And so yeah, they're they're usually just right. very nice and and, and warm people. And, I,
0: and, I, and they have a lot of toys. They have
2: airplanes and oh, bikes. Yeah, and, that's, yeah, and that
0: is convincing yeah. to other people. Sure. You know, they must be legit. Look at, the, look like, at where they drive. And look where at they the Ferrari. Where they, where they yeah. vacation. But I think, you know, as the victims, they almost always will say, you know, because we talk to them after and say, well, what, you know, did you do any due diligence? Yeah, I did due diligence. Oh, really? You did? What did you do? Well... I knew this person that had invested with them and I knew that person and and look, they use this law firm and they have these accountants. I'm like, okay, so you didn't know due diligence at all. You just know who else, you know, they had defrauded before you. So that is, that could we be are due trusting. diligence. I yeah. Mean, like, you know, so. Yep.
2: Well, you, you know, that's that's the biggest difference. You know, I have a decades of emerging markets experience and we will become potentially become business friends from a deal, but not necessarily. And that's because we, we really do have a lot of comfort in our kind of notion of the judicial system and that, that we, have, we have the ability to get some, get some kind of recovery or retribution or whatever. In many, many other cultures, nobody's going to do business with you unless you are a, a friend and at minimum a business friend and that takes a lot of time and a lot of familiarity and Americans and northern Europeans are are just much quicker in deciding who to do business with and who who to write checks to than most of these other cultures so it's fairly unique in a sense but if you look at places like Utah you know for years it was the penny stock capital of the country and we consistently see affinity frauds where people in the same faith or the same church, even or temple, you know, and invest with, with somebody, you know, based, based on that kind of bond or relationship. It happens. Keep, yeah. Keeps us in business.
0: Yeah. Well, thank, thankfully we have people like you, Seth, to, uh, come along and pick up the pieces and help, uh, those victims recover. So we try. Yeah. This was fun, Seth. I appreciate it. It was, uh, I always learn something from you. So um, I hope we can continue to learn and and grow. And if you're out there listening to this and you enjoyed what Seth had to say today, you know how you can thank us? Subscribe, share, leave a review. Five-star review, hopefully. Subscribing to the show and sharing it, leaving reviews helps others find the show and helps us grow devote more time and energy to producing better content here and helps us help America. Seth, thanks for doing it. Wow. Nelson, that thank you. Great. Jeff, God bless America. God bless America. Happy Happy New Year. Nelson, thank, thank you. Seth, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. For more information on this show and other resources, visit FastAmron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at fastamron.